what I was going to say about education was simply that all that's required in this life to further your interests is an interest, <laughs> is a curiosity. That's all that's required is a curiosity. If you've got a curious mind, you will sail. You will, you will, you will, in fact, you will set sail. Welcome to this week's podcast with Glenn Hansard. Glenn is someone who we met, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. He's won an Oscar. He's been, he's, he's been a character in The Simpsons. He's played at the White House. Phenomenal character and great ambassador for Ireland and the arts as a whole. This conversation I found fascinating on so many different levels. He's someone who, who quit school at 13 and something which I got so much from this conversation was his thoughts on saying yes to life and following the flow and following your curiosity. And it was a consistent theme throughout the many stories which he told. And he's... He's someone who I could listen to all hours and I look forward to sitting by a fire with him someday and listening because he's got, he's, he's like a great old oak tree in terms of the wisdom that comes out of or him. Like a Shanachie is in an old yeah. Irish storyteller that's just, just has this beautiful poetic manner and just wonderful way of expressing things. He's uh, a gentleman. Uh, this, this was a great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it and uh, hit us up on social. Let us know what you thought of it. And thanks to everyone who's been listening to all the previous episodes. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Enjoy the journey. So, Glenn, real honour to have you here. We're delighted. Thank you, boys. It's really good to see you. I, I remember. I remember the first time. The first time. The, the first time I hung out with you was when we were when I went to Berlin with our friend Damien, and we ended up we ended up going to a restaurant that was run by blind people. It was a pitch black restaurant. Yeah, absolutely pitch black. You couldn't see a thing. And I was sitting opposite you and the fiddle player, the really lovely fiddle player from Clare. I can't remember his first name. And it was just such an incredible experience to to not be able to see anyone or get any cues from your eyes or your mouth. And it was just, it was like a spiritual experience. It was gas. It really was. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and the restaurant was run by blind people. And the idea was uh, come and have dinner and experience what we experience every day. So that was the kind of the, the notion of the restaurant. And so, and it was, it was a very, you know, it, it was, obviously it was very uh, exciting and people were going along. And I believe that restaurant is still running. I remember that the food was okay, and but but also when the scent, when your when your sight is taken away from you, so you were wheeled into this restaurant and we we sat down. You had to eat with your hands. You were given a knife and fork, but you found yourself just going and using your hands because you wanted to touch the tactile nature of whatever is in front of you. You know the fork. You couldn't see what you were putting your fork into, so you just ended up using your hands. And so the you know you had your napkins and you, yeah. and and the whole conversation was so strange because all the triggers the glances the nods the little the little subtle things that that happen in communication were all taken away and so suddenly you had to find this whole new way of communicating and almost it knocked all of the small talk out of the restaurant and the, the, the other fascinating thing is that there's lots of other people at tables around you and they're all talking and hanging out and they're drinking wine but they can't see anything nobody can see a single thing your phone is taken away from you no light whatsoever the people serving you know their way around the restaurant because they're blind and they know the restaurant well. So they're blind through the restaurant in a very familiar way. But we are completely uh, at a loss. So if, you, if you want to go to the toilet, for instance, you have to call. Someone comes and guides you to the bathroom or where there are lights. Um, and then they would guide you back into the restaurant. But I remember that night being, it was a really profound experience. Um, and I just remember that, I remember the texture of the salad leaves. That was the thing that I... When, when I remember the the food itself, I remember it was, and then there was some kind of like 
I would say like moussaka or some kind of, uh, and then you, your your choices on the menu were vegetarian, meat, mystery. They were the three options, if I remember correctly. And you could choose <laughs> with something vegetarian, something with meat or something mystery. And I think we chose mystery. And that was why I remember kind of feeling the food and my hands being very wet and sticky with the, but it was a wonderful experience. I loved it. Yeah, that's where we met. That was brilliant, actually. Occasionally you will hear just me talk Yeah, I only thought of that when we were just going for a walk there. And I was, one thing, like, I, I'd never thought of, like, the fact that even using cutlery, you're disconnecting yourself from that sensory experience of food. Um, one thing, Glenn, I think you embody so well to me is you seem to have this great attitude of yes to life. Like, there's so many facets to you. Like beneath the surface, Glenn Hansard, whether it be musician, whether it be artist, whether it be a man who can talk about Irish folklore history, a man who can make a boat out of a tree. You know, there's many little things. And I think, can you talk briefly about that wonderful attitude that you have, this yes towards life? Because I find it very... Uh, and and, and is, it rem- so, is it something you've had to work at or has it been natural or are you even conscious of it or is it just baked into how you are? Well, first of all, that's a beautiful compliment to, to give anybody. So thanks very much for saying that. And it always makes one feel, you know, somewhat connected with the world when someone tells you that you've got a yes to life attitude. Thanks, lads. That's great. Um, where, where, where would that come from? If it's, if it's there at all, it would be, uh, I mean, uh, I kind of, I guess I, my, my own parents were very much like, there was a kind of a, I grew up in a house that was very open. There was always people coming in and, you know, there was always somebody getting their head together in one of the rooms. You know, my dad would bring these lads home and, and my mom would, would, my brother would bring friends home who were homeless or got kicked out of their gaffs and they needed somewhere to stay. And so we always, we kind of had one of those homes and you hear about these kind of homes a lot, which was a bit of a train station, a bit of a hub where the kettle was always on. My ma was always sitting at the kitchen table with someone talking through something. And so there was always this kind of energy in our home of, you know, the present. We were always in the present. There was always some drama or some situation that always drew everybody into the here and now. And I think uh, when I was going to school, I, 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 for me personally, I just had this... Uh, incredible sense that school was just just this really banal rhythm which seemed for me now i'm only talking personally but seemed for me to be designed around breaking your spirit down into some kind of uh capitulation or or some kind of agreement to some notion uh dictated by someone outside of my life and and for me what was exciting when i discovered music I discovered the same freedom that seemed to always be in my home. The same, uh, uh, like, like you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, and so, you know, when I when I did eventually go busking, I suddenly tuned into this super. The the like it's a bit like you know without getting too kind of esoteric, but like once you once you make a decision, once you make a decision to go towards life, to go towards light, to go towards what moves you, then the universe just seems to go, yes, come on. And then suddenly you're in a caravan of all these heads and it's like you're moving towards something kind of 
something something yes you're moving towards something that is just a kind of a a, a general yes got about it and so you know even recently we were just talking about kez uh our little our little lurcher here and um, you know a, a year a year and a bit ago um her neighbors um her travelers said to us do you want a dog and we, we you know we thought about it we went we have because you know we're we're moving a lot i'm traveling a lot and it's funny we just said you know what let's say yes to life and it's funny that you use that phrase you say yes to life because we just said let's say yes to life and now we have this incredible being that needs to be walked three times a day that needs to run 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 constantly who just is obsessed with the ball and you basically you take this thing into your life it's a bit like having children i suppose you take this you accept this thing into your life and then suddenly you are you're engaged in the huge cycle and circle um of life and you and and you know I'm very aware of the fact that we have this wild animal living in our home that depends on us and that that we uh and that 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 teaches us and that we we feed and we get comfort from and uh and it's a, it's just a, it's an incredible thing but but to come back to the to the point about going busking and 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 kind of basically what I've realized in my life in the 50 years that I've been here is that when you follow when you follow your gut when you follow your heart there's there's an incredible wave that comes up behind that that supports it and when you're not following your heart and when you're then there's an incredible wave that goes against it and so it's just about catching the it's really just about catching the wave surely in in your life just sort of you know you guys there she is you guys are um you guys are wonderful uh, examples of of you know to me and and you know apart from being your friends and um, the reason why you know i would i would agree to do a podcast with you guys is because you guys are definitely operating in the yes you you've you you know everything about you from the outside now i don't you know i don't know the intricate uh day to day of your life or the or you know i don't know the full canvas of your every day but there's something about you guys that just resonates a kind of a yeah we're getting it done we're going here we're going to get this you're it's like you're it's like you're working for the you know if in life we're just we're either working for the light or we're working for the dark you guys are working for the light and that that's the that's the the bottom line and 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 that you know we that's only get beautiful so, well we only get so long so that's we have lovely follow, we have to follow what moves us on that, on that on that question so so you've turned 50 now and as we were saying like i think we were we just went for a walk there before we had this chat and we were kind of just talking about you and I was saying Glenn reminds me of like an oak tree or like a big oak tree that's flexible in the wind and you've got these deep Celtic roots in you and you've you, you know you've had such an incredible experience when we were doing research like you know you've you played for President Obama at the White House. You've played with Joni Mitchell's birthday. You've played with Bruce Springsteen. You've won Oscars. You've won Academy Awards. Like you've had these massive highs. You've left school at 13. Like you've had such a colourful 50 years. And I'm kind of wondering like, what, do you have any philosophies or what are kind of your, if you were to kind of write a little book to, to your, to to your, you know, to, to someone leaving your little nuggets, what are your philosophies that you try to live by? Well, it, well, it, it sounds great when you say it. it, it that, that description of the, of, of the events of my life or, or some of the highlights, are, uh, it sounds great. Um, uh, and yes, there's a, there's a, 
yet there's a daily struggle. And the daily struggle is that every, and the good news is that everybody, no matter who they are, whether they're Barack Obama or, or, or Mick Christopher or, you know, or, or anybody, whoever they are, they've got to get out of bed in the morning. They've got to pull on their clothes. They've got to splash some cold water on their face and get into their day and somehow get into whatever it is they do and find that, find that energy to, to, to move forward, to, uh, to advance. And, and what, I mean, what I've learned through, through, through my time on, on the planet and it's a, it's a, you know, and what, what are we doing here? What, 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 you know, what is the, what is the big, uh, what is the big idea? You know, maybe the big idea has something to do with getting wiser and, and accumulating a wisdom because otherwise we're parasitical and we, we wake up every day and we just consume. You know, is there some kind of give back? Is there some kind of energy exchange that you can do with the universe where, yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm consuming. Yes, I'm, you know, moving through this space. Uh, but is there some kind of give back? And I guess it has something to do with energy because there, there is an exchange, you know, like my parents they uh they were young when they had me like my my mother was probably 20 when i was born now the idea of a you know she had me, me younger brother at 18 or actually 19 no no she had him at 17 and and then she had me at 20 and and so they had given so much of their lives they with the, whatever tools that they possessed they did their best to raise me and my brothers and you know, and they gave, the, you know, it's like, it's the classic thing of like the tree drops the seed, the seed grows, the older tree gets out of the way so the younger tree can get more light. That might mean falling over. It might, you know, we just live in this uh, cycle. And so, and so, you know, um, what is the goal to attain a bit of, to attain a bit of knowledge, but not knowledge for knowledge's sake and not knowledge for selfish sake, but knowledge that you can be a worthy vessel for some kind of, uh, some kind of, you know, uh, greater, I won't say good because good has a, good sort of has a, this, a, this idea of that, that there's good and bad. Cause I don't know if there is good and bad. There's just, there's just energy. And, uh, but, but that to be kind of a part of something that's moving things forward as opposed to keeping things standing still or moving things backwards. And so, you know, you asked me what my philosophy would be, would be forward motion in whatever, in whatever sense that, that I can really, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to give you a straight answer on that, but just to, uh, to go with what moves you and to follow what moves you. Now, I know that some might say that that's a very, you know, there's a very, very easy attitude or a very rich attitude, but I've been making that decision since the beginning. Like from the very beginning, from the very moment I was conscious of having an independent mind to my parents or to society, then I just went for what moved me. And, uh, and it's worked out well so far, you know, but I'm, you know, if, yeah, and, and the way I look at it, you know, I, I'm 50 now. If I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, I've got 30 years. If I'm lucky, you know, I've got 30 years left. And, and I know how fast a decade goes at this age. A decade just goes boom, you know. So I understand that, 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 that there's, there's an accumulation of, of uh, you know, and 50 is an interesting age because, you know, there's an interesting saying that says between the age of zero and 30, you get the face you're born with. Between the age of 30 and 50, 
you get the you get the face uh you you get the face uh you earn and then between 50 and the rest of your life you get the face you deserve you know it's an interesting just an interesting uh idea so that so that from from here on from 50 you know traditionally saying from 50 on is when your body starts beginning to break down and one of the really really interesting things about suddenly finding myself middle aged is that the ego takes a fierce beat. The ego gets its head kicked in because all of that vigor and all of that like life force that you that you've had for so long begins to very naturally diminish, and you start noticing it in little things like I've got this shoulder ache that hasn't gone away for two years, and I've got a knee thing that that I've noticed hasn't gone away for two years. You know there are things that are just creeping in there, and that's just. That's just the that's just the mechanics, you know. Not to mention the soul and the stuff that has been hanging around for years and years. And and this idea that the ego is constantly getting broken down, and this is where the deeper, uh, so the deeper learning is going on. Uh, and in a way, I look at the generation of you know just to to look at my profession. I look at the generation of songwriters and artists who are coming through, and I look at the young poets, and I look at the and I absolutely do not want to be that guy going, do you remember I, you know, do you remember I did that? Do you remember I had that when I, I never want to be that guy sitting in the bar going, I, you know, sang with Bruce Springsteen or, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the one who goes, it's your time. Take it, you know. But we do battle with these things every day. We do battle with, with these questions in ourselves. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm kind of going off on one. But, but you know, it's, it's, about, it's about, at a certain age, it's about stepping out of the way. Yeah, I think I could listen to you all day, Glenn. You speak very poetically. You have a beautiful, different, different use of language. It's beautiful. It's really colourful. And, and, and by stepping out of the way, do you mean it's almost like, you know, we've all got these ideas of who we should be and what we think we should be doing to be productive and to be Glenn Hansard and to be Stephen Flynn and to be David Flynn. And is it almost like that you're saying that you reach an age where you kind of step aside and you go, okay, well, I need to be cognizant of that. My time is finite and how can I facilitate others and give value to life? You know, or that type of thing. Is that kind of what you're. Yeah. It's, well, it's part of that. And, and it's also to do it like, because we all have, we all have a, sorry, she's, uh, she's just playing ball. I have to, I have to keep throwing the ball. Otherwise she'll be barking. Um, but there's a kind of a thing where, where certainly where we, 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 serve, we serve our careers. We serve this idea of our career, like the frames and, you know, the swell season and once and, and my solo career. And, you know, there's all of that and there's all of what that means. And, and if, you know, like, you know, next, hopefully next year we get to touch wood, we get to go out, we get to do some gigs and, you know, I get to, you know, earn enough money to pay for this lovely house I live in, all that stuff. There's all of that end of things, the career, the stuff that's, you know, the basic. But then there's also uh, the, the, I think we go through, a, we go through a period in our lives where we, like, you know, from the age of sort of 25, sorry, she's really, uh, from the age of sort of 25 to sort of 45, I didn't stop. I just didn't stop. I was just bam, bam, flags in the grounds, mountains climbed, achievements done, boom, stamp, stamp, you know, done it, done this, done that. And I'm now at an age, not that I'm going to, not that I'm going to stop achieving, 
But whatever I'm to do, it needs to be at a deeper, uh, not quieter level, but, but it's not, for me, it's not about sticking flags in the ground anymore. It's about something else. It's, a, it's, about, uh, uh, it's about if I'm going to continue to write, getting closer to the truth. Uh, if I'm going to continue to sing, it's about stripping away the ego and getting to the real voice. I'm at an age where, where I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in being the biggest and the fastest and the loudest anymore. I'm interested in being the truest the, the, that I can be. The, the, you know, uh, and, you know, over the last year, it's taught us how to be slow. So the truest, the slowest, and the quietest. You know, can you be those things too? Also, and so it's uh, the, the the pandemic has really offered a. You know, it's been bloody devastating as well. I mean, I've had really hard months. Like the winter for me, lads, was really. I was. I wasn't well upstairs. You know, I was suffering. Now, I'm not going. I'm not saying that I was like because I feel very fortunate in life to to do what I do and to you know, to, to have money enough in the bank to, to live off. And, you know, I'm, I'm in no way struggling the way other people are, but I struggle within my own, uh, self too. And so, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, like I said, for 30 years, I've been moving, 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 constantly moving. And now for the last two years, I've been, or last year, I've been absolutely still. You know, I've hardly left the house. I went to Sicily in December to, to take part in a movie, but basically I was here. And it's been really difficult because when all you know how to do is travel and, and move, then being still is very, very difficult. And so it's been an incredibly humbling year for me. Uh, and I've learned an awful lot. And, you know, when I hear people say, when things get back to normal, I'm like this, there is no back to normal. There is no, you know, we are here. We're only ever here. This is, this is the big lesson. If, if we come out of this and if we come out of this and learn nothing, then we're absolute, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. You know, this has been a massive shift, a massive lesson this year. And I've really struggled uh, to, to keep focus on what I do or to care about what I do, or to, or to, um, or to see the significance in what I do, and then I realize, you know, I go, I go on, I do a little Instagram live thing, about once a month, and I realize in that moment that this is what this is what I do, this is what I'm, this is my purpose, this is what I'm born to do. It's not just to write songs, or not just to, to, uh, you know, sell records or have a career. It's to connect. And to to uh, to be part to be part of a big community of of creative spirits, and when I say creative spirits, I mean everybody. To be part of a of a of a huge uh, conversation that is this life that we get to live for a very brief period. Beautiful, and I totally agree. Like it's it's kind of the same a similar experience happened to us in terms of the business. Like we've been going for. 15 years go 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 away and it's a wonderful ride but it was only in recent years that we kind of started to reflect on what do we really want like you know after a while we found out we had a bit of a job and it was kind of like well what's real success and we kind of over the last year we've kind of focused instead of being bigger let's just focus on being more better and more do what we do more beautifully 
So that's that's and and that's a struggle even because as you said if you've been if you've been building that muscle for 30 years of go 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 you you just have this habit and I see it like my only goals for this year were to to meditate more and to take it easy and it's so hard to take it easy if you've built this muscle of go 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 so yeah, uh, yeah you know yeah can relate anyway. to you anyway I that over the last year you know or the year a couple of years you've realized and you say like get into more meditation and but how has it actually managed? Like we, when, when you guys realized that Happy Pair was probably, you know, you, I'm just quoting you now, so don't get me wrong. And when the, you, when you said the Happy Pair was feeling more like was feeling like a bit of a job, and then you wanted to sort of get more into, you know, what does it actually really mean to you? What does your life really? So what is there? The is there, is there an, yeah, is there an actual moment that you can describe where you where you re- so for instance? You know, were you guys about to open many other shops in the country? Like, what was the thing that actually changed for you in a way? Yeah, the bit for me, looking back retrospectively, I remember we'd borrowed a million and a half euros. We were opening, we'd open another cafe. We'd set up a big central production facility. We'd gone from having 150 employees to 200 employees. The business had just turned over more than 10 million euro. It was all going. We were were going to export to the UK. We were now getting our products in Waitrose. Wow. It was going great. And then I'd come down to Pearville, which we call where where we kind of produce a lot of the food, we big kitchens. And I was walking around and you'd meet new people that were employees every other day. And you kind of go, geez, I probably wouldn't have employed them if that was myself. And it started to feel like, you know, is this our business anymore? What am I doing this for? And I kind of realized that, you know, we were getting up. We weren't swimming in the sea as much. I wasn't having brekkie with the kids. I wasn't bringing my kids to school. I was kind of going, what's, you know, what's all this for? And it was only, we, we went to see this, um... By chance, we bumped into this kind of business philosopher, this guy, Charles Handy, which Dave happened to do his thesis on. And we went over to the UK and had an L lunch with him. And it was just wonderful opportunity to reflect on what's important in life. And it was, I guess, spurred on by that conversation, we kind of decided. Well, I'd say we've gone on this journey because it's a, it's a journey of how to, how to do less and be more. I think that's it because it's hard. There's been so much cultural programming of do, 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 go, go, go. And uh, yeah, I think the internal world, how to cultivate a more fruitful and rich internal world so you're less dependent on the external world and the ups and downs of it. The vicissitudes of life. Woo! Nice. Very good. Glenn, I want to ask you about being Irish. I recently, we've this podcast group that we listen to. There's a group of us that swim in the sea and kind of friends and someone picks a podcast each week and we all listen to it and we all talk about it uh, on a Sunday morning. And back pre-COVID, we'd meet in person and, you know, recently it's just been on Zoom. But one week it was John O'Donoghue and it was about kind of talking about Irish. And I've never heard anyone speak so poetically about being Irish. And after listening to that, I've been learning Irish for 202 days now, just five minutes a day, just to really try to connect him with our, our, to be Irish. And I think you're a wonderful ambassador for Ireland. You, you embody it in so many ways and you speak about it so beautifully. Can you often like, I, I feel sad when my kids, May's 10 and Theo's eight and Ned's four and May and Theo don't like Irish. They're immediately going, I don't like Irish dad. And you know, there's this kind of resistance. How do we as a nation kind of come around this beautiful land and celebrate it more because it's it really is so and also magical. your experience with being Irish and what that means to you because I'd love to know that as well yeah well you know it's a, it, it, we were we were only we were only talking myself and Myra were only talking about this today 
um, I watched a really interesting Claire Byrne uh, show last night. I, I wanted to see it because the discussion was uh, we don't we don't we've been really really watching very little um, screens. Um, and but when I heard about this Claire Byrne show, I wanted to watch it because it was just it was a discussion on like the first time I've seen a discussion on TV about a United Ireland. No, that's a that's another subject. But being Irish and what is what is Irish? I mean, I grew up, I grew up in Ballymore. Now, did I ever feel a kind of a did I ever feel a kind of a Ballymore pride? Um. Not particularly. I, I, I left Ballymun as soon as I could because there wasn't many musicians there, as in musicians in my circle. So I went over to Grafton Street and started playing. And, and, and so I went from being kind of a, you know, I had definitely knew that there was notions about Northside people not necessarily being the, you know, not necessarily, nothing to do with them, but not necessarily being the, maybe the most motivated people or you know this idea of dole and you know that that basically your life is a is a is a is a kind of a very your options are limited and um, this idea where i was lucky i met a painter when i was uh when i was busking and just as sort of i'm i'm probably i'm probably going to go a long way to answering this question about irishness but let me just sort of say uh when i was because i learned so much from busking um when I was busking, I met a painter and I lived with her for a few years and she lived in Kildare, which is where I live now. Uh, and she lived in a, an old schoolhouse on a canal and she was a painter. And so I came out and she had sons my age and we all hung out and I was best friends with her sons. She let me stay upstairs. She paid for music college. I went to music college in, in, um, in Westland Row to study the violin. But she said, Don't, just pick an instrument. It doesn't matter which instrument you pick. I want you to learn to play music because you're, you've got talent. Now, she took me under her wing and she taught me what it was to be an artist. Because living in that house, a very simple house, what they weren't rich people, very, you know, very, very simple, basic home. But it was full of books. It was full of music. She was constantly playing Handel and Bach. And so I was, I was suddenly, I suddenly found myself as a young Ballymun lad who left school early. I went from studying Seamus Heaney in school and not enjoying it to meeting Seamus Heaney and, he, and, and hearing his poems in real life. And so my excitement, I'm coming back to the Irish language thing, my excitement about poetry was ignited by the fact that here I was in the company of poets here I was in the company of artists. So suddenly my curiosity and my, my, uh, my, my, my exposure to the, to the world of literature and, and, and the arts was so much more exciting. I remember when Philip, when Philip, Philip uh, was the, is the artist, Philippa Bayless, if anyone wants to look her up. And when, when the cupboards were bare, she would, she would say, okay, guys, let's go. And we drive the van into town and we put up an exhibition of paintings in Kennedy Gallery on Harcourt Street, which was where she had a relationship with that gallery. We'd hang the, we'd hang the exhibition. They'd invite a load of people, get a few bottles of wine. People would come to the exhibition. People would buy her paintings because her paintings were amazing. Um, I've got a, actually, there's one of the paintings you can, I wonder if you can see it behind me uh, up here. 
it's up at the horse, up, up in the corner. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I've got loads of her paintings here. The very first painting I ever bought was one of hers. Um, but but uh, like we, we should hang the exhibition. The, the exhibition would sell. We'd go home. There'd be loads of groceries. She'd buy a new car. You know, there'd be like, there'd be this kind of six month period of absolute uh, abundance in the house. Real spirit of like people getting new clothes and, you know, and she didn't, the money that wasn't put in a bank, it was just, it was spent on life in the, and the needs of the everyday right now. And then, and, and that's how she paid for my music college, you know, through selling paintings. And then after about six months, maybe a year, it would be cold and there would be no oil in the aga and there'd be no, you know, there'd be no food in the cupboard. And I'd be like, right, lads, let's go. We'd load up the van full of paintings. We'd drive into town. We'd hang the paintings. They'd buy the cheap bottles of wine. People would come. They'd drink the wine. They'd buy the paintings. And the house would be abundant again. And what I learned from, from Philippa was such an important lesson, which is that life is about uh, using what you have, using it and not, not hoarding it, but using it, giving it away. Because when you give things away, they come back to you. And Philippa really took care of me. She gave me somewhere to sleep, which is the biggest thing. She, she paid for my college to go study. No, I was a really bad student, as it turns out, in the college too, because studying music and having music in your spirit are, can be two different things. Now, some people are blessed with having both. For me, it was I, the academic pursuit of music wasn't as interesting to me as the spiritual pursuit of music. And that's not to say one is better than the other, but for me, it had to be spiritual. Um, but she taught me how to be an artist. Uh, and I remember when I first had the, the earning capacity of a young musician, I would get a job in the, the, remember the colony restaurant was beside Paris Court. Dave Vine was the owner. Dave would give, us, give me a gig. He'd say, right, I'll give you a gig. It's going to be 200 quid. You're going to play between eight and 11. And I'd go in and I'd play and I'd get 200 quid. And that, that money would give me an, an abundance for the next week of, or two weeks of my life, three weeks. And then I would do another gig. And so I was able to sort of always see that and money is just energy. That's all it is. It just comes into your life. You, you, and when energy comes into your life, what do you do with it? You don't hoard it. Never hoard energy. Just give it back. Go, you know, kind of just, it's like you're, somebody's just passed you the ball. Run with the ball. Bounce the ball. Kick the ball. You know, it's like, it's not yours anyway. It's just we're in this kind of flow. And so, so I, 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 I learned so much from, from that, from, from living with her uh, so much about the life of an artist and that, and actually, and I've been very, very lucky to say, and some friends of mine have said, yeah, you've just been very lucky. And yes, I have been very lucky. But from the very first day that I went busking at 13, I never, never worried about money. It just never came up. There were moments when I had none and there were moments when I had loads, but I never worried about it. And, and maybe I'm just, and maybe I'm absolutely blessed I don't know, but I haven't had to worry about it. And I'm here 50 years now and I've never had to worry about it. And when it comes in, it goes out. It's not like I have a big stockpile somewhere that I can't touch it or a big, you know, some, some that's hidden in some kind of uh, 
you know, when people talk about funds and stuff that's kind of, it's squirreled away. It's never been. And, and thankfully, and thank Jesus, I, 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 you know, I, I still live the way I want to live and things just seem to come in and they go out and they come in and they go out. And there's a, so far I've never tried to put a, I've never tried to somehow put a, what's the word? Nail that to any kind of shape. It just seems to be the way things run. Very fluid, very fluid. And, and, and Glenn, on the topic of like, say you kind of starting busking at 13, I think you really embody what it is to be a grafter, to just show up, keep at it, follow your passion, pursue it. And, you know, there's kind of a trust that life will look after it. I remember we were doing a talk in Northern England back a few years ago. And I remember we were talking to a bunch of teenagers in kind of a disadvantaged area. And I remember we went in and we were, you know, we were doing our best, but they were paying no attention to us. And about half an hour into the talk, Dave mentioned, oh, we've been doing YouTube for a few years. And, uh, I think we 40 million views or something and suddenly they all lit up and they were all fascinated because half of them in the room wanted to be YouTubers because they saw it as this kind of way of skipping the work and just I can be a YouTuber you make loads of money doing it and you get to do cool stuff mm. and, and I think often and, and I'm saying this just there can be this kind of misconception about how much of the pursuit of passion is showing up consistently. And I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, and similarly, people can come up to us and go, geez, lads, you're doing amazing. How'd you get there? And it's like, I've been doing it 15 years and I've been showing up every day and I love it. Yeah. And I think, what, what are your thoughts on that and your experience with the importance of grafting and the journey? It's a great question, lads. Uh, and, and it's one that I do think about um, because, you know, again, my young neighbours too wonderful lads tom and felix are uh they're they're they've got music they just got it they've they you know their father's a great musician their their uncle uh felix doran was like one of the great irish pipers uh in that traveling community of like music is just in you um and i see it in them and but i'm always trying to say to them lads you need to work we need to work we need to go out and so i've been taking them up busking every few months you know we haven't been busking for a while but for me it was you're absolutely right about graft and showing up and every day and consistency and but you can only do that if you're moved by it you can only give the energy to something that actually is what you want to do you'll find out if something is not what you want to do by by asking people to give their time and energy and every day to something that they're not passionate about it's not going to work you know, I was just lucky enough that I happened to pick up a guitar when I was 12 and, and, and I, I just happened to, I happened to realize, and I knew kind of even before then that music was something I always wanted to do. I had an uncle who was really inspiring and he, you know, he used to play in bars and, you know, he blew me away. He was like one of these guys, he was a working musician and that just, that just seemed like so exotic to me, my Uncle Paul. And, but what I would say about, about, you know, my successes because that's all i can really speak to i absolutely agree with you that talent is this tiny bit on the scale of of what is necessary talent is talent is important but graft is it you know 90% perspiration 10% inspiration Th- this idea that 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 you just work and work and work and work and work and work and you get better and better at it and better at it. Like 
And I honestly feel like, you know, in terms of songwriting, my goal, my life goal was always to write 10 good songs. From the very beginning, from the very first song I ever wrote, my goal was I want to write 10 good songs. And, and 10 good songs isn't like, you know, 10 decent songs. 10 good songs is no, 10 really, like 10 songs that absolutely stand on their own without me. They don't need me singing them. They don't need me framing them. There are just 10 good songs. And, and in a way, I sort of felt like if you left behind in life one greatest hits record of 10 songs that, that actually was kind of undeniable, then actually you've lived a very- How many have you written? Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think, I, like, it would be a lie to say I don't think any. I think maybe one, maybe two, you know, if I, if I really let myself wow. kind of go there. And, 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 that, and but, but I absolutely say that with the caveat that it's none of my business what songs of mine are good or not. Because actually, once you wrote, once you've written it and you've recorded it, it's none of your business anymore. Because then it goes into the world and it becomes other people's song. And if they, and if, and if they, if they listen to it, it's their song. If they interpret it, if they sing it, then it's their song in a whole other way. That enough, that, that, that actually there is no, you don't get to own it. You don't get to you don't get to control how you're viewed in the world. You don't get to control how you're perceived. And so you have to really just go, I put it out, I have to let it go. It's none of my business what people think of me after this. But I'll do my best in this moment to get it to get it where it needs to go. So to write ten good songs, I don't know. Maybe I've written three or four or five. Maybe I've written ten. Maybe I've written more than ten. But it's not for me to say. Do, do you know what I mean? It's it's uh I I don't I don't get mm. to speak to that. Beautiful. Uh, okay, I got a question for you. So, so you left school when you were thirteen, which is you know we obviously we went to we went right the way through school and we went to, to college because that was what we were told we should do or whatever. You you left school at thirteen and you've obviously been a huge like you followed your nose and followed your passions and as you said, gone with the energy as you kind of described it. What are your views on education? Like, because you're more like self-taught rather than, you know, traditional school taught for your latter teenage years. I learned more from, from being, like, as you said, reading about Seamus Heaney was one thing, but meeting him and seeing the man and feeling that, like just a passion was, uh, you are very much about experiencing life, it seems. You know, what's your, which is what what's your thoughts on education? Having Well, just to come back to that question, which I actually, I've realized actually while talking to you that most of the questions you've asked me, I haven't answered. I've kind of gone off on some other, <laughs> that's the nature of conversation. And I love that. Um, but to come back to what you were saying about, you know, to talk about Heaney and say, so I didn't like doing poetry in school. I didn't like Patrick Cavanagh in school. It was only when I heard somebody who was passionate about Cavanagh. It was only when I heard Lou Kelly singing Cavanagh's lyrics that I went, wow. So it's the same with the Irish language. When you're around people who, who have it and who aren't, I've been very lucky with the language. Now, my Irish is rubbish. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that I'm, uh, that I'm fluent or anything, but I have such an appreciation of the language because I've been around people who live it, who, who, who you know, like Colum, Colum McAnumra from The Frames, he, he, he learned English when he was about seven years old. He only spoke Irish growing, growing up. Same with Brendan Begley. That he only learned English when he was about 10 or 12. 
they didn't even go into they didn't even go into Dingle. They were like way out in the and so the and the and what what I've really realized, lads, is the generosity of Irish speakers. When people aren't correcting you, but they're going, Oh, well done. Now if you now if you just said it this way, and like even words like the Scaravian, we talked about it earlier on. The Scaravian, the 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 the, the tail end of winter, the nasty tail end of winter, this period between April and May where just as springtime is becoming summer, the winter just goes, I'm not done yet. And it gives you two weeks of just like horrendous weather. You know, the Scaravian and the poetry of that, the, just that, that term, it, it sits nice in the tongue. It's like a flavor. You, you know, you roll it around in your mouth. And when you're around people who, who are generous with language and you're around people who are, who are excited to share it, then, then language becomes something that's, that's incredibly enriching and, and, and you, you want to know and you want to, when we were on the, we were on the Camino voyage, Danny, Danny, she, he would write in my notebook, like he would say to me, um, sing me the lyrics of, uh, you know, Danny was a beautiful Irish speaker. One of the finest Irish speakers we had, in fact, um, give me the lyrics of the foggy Jew. And so I'd recite the lyrics of the foggy Jew and he would translate them and I'd watch his handwriting. And I'd say, you know, and he would be translating and he'd be explaining to me the translation. And obviously, when you translate, you rewrite. Translation isn't a thing that you type into Google and it, it basically copies every word and gives you the, you know, the Irish version. Translation is rewriting. It's taking one line in English, looking at it, saying and sort of going, what's the meaning of this? What's the poetic arc of this line? How do we get the poetry of that line into another language. So it was a really, really fascinating and generous experience to be on the boat with Irish speakers who spoke Irish all of the time on the boat. Not because they, they were, we're speaking Irish because we're flag wavers or, or we're nationalists or we're not at all. We're speaking Irish because that's what we grew up with. And that's the, the beautiful language of the sea and the, you know, and so many wonderful terms in, in Irish about the sea and about how the sea is completely ambivalent to us sailors. You know, she'll swallow us up and she won't even notice. So we have to show her incredible respect because, you know, she's completely, uh, uh, you know, oblivious to us. And so being with those guys gave me such a, uh, an appreciation for the language of the Irish language. So now to come back to education, um, I think the only thing that's required... Can, 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 can we talk about education in a sec? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was I was just going to say no maybe go with your education thing I was just on the topic of the boat I I do and maybe after education will you talk about that boat trip because that's that's like for someone who might just know you as a musician I'd love to hear your experiences and that and what you learned but maybe tell us about education sorry for cutting you off well simply I absolutely uh, what I was going to say about education was simply that all that's required in this life to further your interests is an interest <laughs> is a curiosity that's all that's required is a curiosity if you've got a curious mind you will sail you will you will you will in fact you will set sail towards your goal i remember when i was a kid and i've i've, I've tried to explain this and i made the mistake of trying to explain this to bob but but i met bob dylan when i was 23 now it was a completely random moment where i was standing with pete Shore. now bob dylan was my you know to put it in context when I began to play music, I felt like he had saved my life. I just, my, a friend of mine gave me a Bob Dylan cassette 
And I listened to that cassette and it was literally a life raft. I've, you know, I grew up in Ballymun. 81 was a really hard year. Bobby Sands, the hunger strikers. We were, as young people, we were, we were getting mobilized. We were, we were out wearing the black armbands. We were at the marches. We were selling on Foblucht. You know, we were, we were basically young, angry people in the, you know, and and when I discovered music, and I'm not saying there's, there's anything, anything right or wrong with that feeling, because it's just a feeling, and we were passionate about a thing. But when I discovered music, I just saw a much bigger horizon. I saw, uh, I saw a universe open up to me that was awe-inspiring. And to, like, you know, to sing, you know, where have you been, my blue eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling? You like this was like I was suddenly, you know, I was seeing the world for the first time. I was I, suddenly a horizon appeared where all I could see was buildings all around me, a horizon, a big, a great opening, and I went hell for leather towards that opening. And all I had was a couple of guitar chords and a, a need. And so what I did, I guess, as a young person is I set sail. I hoisted the masts. I set sail towards Bob Dylan. I didn't really know what the location was. The location to me, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, um, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, sophisticated enough as a young boy to, to, to decide I wanted to be famous or to decide I wanted to be a, you know, I had no idea about that. I just set sail towards Bob Dylan and I hoisted my mast and every little breath of wind that blew in the direction of Bob Dylan, I caught it and I inched and I inched and I inched my way towards and I sang and I, I inched my way towards Bob Dylan. Now, at 23, I bumped into him. A bit like your ship in the middle of the night without realizing it hits the goal, hits the country you're looking for, hits that tiny island in the Pacific that you set sail for from Dublin Harbour. When you were, you know, when you were 12. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that within 11 years, within 11 years of falling in love with this man from America who sang songs, within 11 years, my boat had caught enough wind to bump into that man. <laughs> you know, and that's, for me as a young person. And what was it was, like meeting him then? It what was, was it like for you meeting him then? It was, I can't describe it. I can't describe it. It was, it was the stuff of pure, pure magic. When something so purely magical happens that it's just, you take it in your stride because it's just reality. When reality and magic meet, like I bumped into the man and I spoke to him for maybe two minutes. About and when you say bump in, was it like literally just walking down New York High Street and you bumped into him or what does bumped into him? It, I'll, t- I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Myself and Pete Short. Uh, Pete used to sell the In Dublin magazine outside Bewley's Cafe. I'm sure a lot of people would remember Pete. Pete's still, still alive and he's, he's, he's alive and well. But he used to sell it. And we and him, myself and Pete used to like me because I was a Bob Dylan. I used to bust Bob Dylan songs. Not exclusively, but a lot of Bob Dylan songs. And Pete liked me. And myself and Pete, who was, like my, who was like the Dylanologist in my life, he knew more about Bob Dylan than anyone I knew. And so I loved Pete because he seemed to know the best recordings of this song or the, 
you know, the inspiration behind this book or whatever it was. Uh, and Pete introduced me to so many great writers and so many, you know, he was kind of, he was like a kind of a guru to me, like a father figure in my artistic uh, quest, you know, and because he had such a huge mind. And, and we were walking past the Westbury Hotel and I've got my guitar and I'm walking with Pete and literally, literally within two, three feet of us, is Bob Dylan standing, having a cigarette, standing outside the hotel, having a cigarette in Dublin. And, and Pete, without missing a beat, says to Bob, who's, he's never met Bob, he's the biggest Bob Dylan fan in the world, says to Bob, without missing a beat and without being kind of like, oh my God, he just says, hey, Bob, this is Glenn. And Bob goes, hey, Glenn. And he shakes my hand. And I'm like, I'm like, there he is. You know, I'm like, it's you. You know, it's like, it's that moment where you just completely, like, you've just stepped into a, a magic realm. And Bob says hello. And I say hello. And I have a copy of Tarantula, amazingly, in my pocket. And I pull it out and I say, Bob, would, would, you, would you sign? And he says, yeah, yeah, sure. And he signs it, which he, apparently I, I found out later on, he rarely signs things. Signs it. And I said to him, Bob, I said, meeting you, uh, meeting you is what it must have been like when you met Woody. And he just said, oh, Woody, man. Woody was incredible. You know, I never got to speak to Woody. Uh, I used to play for him, though. I used to go to the hospital and, and uh, I'd take out my guitar and I'd play. He was, he was everything to me. And it was really wonderful. We had this brief conversation about Woody Guthrie, where Bob just opened up about his, about his hero. And we spoke for a few minutes. and. Within a year, within a, within, a, within a year of that conversation with him, we opened up for him and we did a tour with him. Uh, so, it's, so the magic goes much deeper. The magic, the magic goes much deeper. I'll tell you how much deeper. Oh, no, it's not here. The magic goes way deep uh, with, with that particular story. And it's probably too broad for me to, and I'd probably be speaking out a line if I talked about Bob in certain ways, but the magic of meeting him and setting sail, like I said, towards him at 12 years old, uh, towards meeting this giant, uh, has been, has been an incredibly rich seam throughout my life that, that I, am um, that I can't, I, I find it hard to speak to without realizing that magic absolutely exists because, you know, yes, I am a songwriter. Yes. Bob Dylan is a peer of mine. I'm 50 years old. He's, he, he's, he's 78 years old. He's 80 years old, whatever. It, he's like, there is, at a certain point in your life, you have to stop looking at idols and start looking at peers because I'm a songwriter. He's a songwriter. Yes, we mine the same world. We mine the same, for the, we look for the same poetry. He's a massive influence on me. And he's also the, the one that got me interested in music and got me interested and excited by storytelling and songwriting. Um, but there's been incredible magic that's come out of that, come out of that meeting and that, uh, and that encounter and the, and the subsequent encounters with him through the years. Uh, I, I, it would take a whole podcast to talk about it really, but, but um, I, I feel incredibly blessed <laughs> for that, you know. But anyway, so, so, so 
there you go. There's my such doctor. an amazing story, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, just, you really are a shanaki. Like you're, you're. I, I feel like I, I can't. I'd love to sit by a fire with you, with a dog, and and just sit there and listen to you all night. And it'd feel like sitting in the soul of the world. Like, remember we got to sit by a fire with you. I remember down at Electric Picnic one year. Remember you got that fancy. Uh, Little, kettle, a kettle, Kelly kettle, a Kelly kettle. I remember that. There we are. We got to do it once. The Kelly kettle will lead us perfectly into the boat because the uh, the the the. Oh, oh, the boat. That's, that's exactly what I want to talk uh, for anyone who doesn't know Glenn can you just give a context to the boat because it's like I, I saw it being described as a, as a Celtic odyssey and that's what it is like because people talk about the kind of the um, what do you call it the Camino de Camino Santiago. de Santiago and they do their version of it but your version was just this voyage well yes it was it was deep and I'm very 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 lucky and fortunate to have been on a part of it I wasn't on the whole thing. Uh, but So what the whole thing was, for anybody who doesn't know, um, these beautiful, beautiful uh, people from Kerry built, Danny Sheehy and Liam Holden, both built a Navogue. Now, a Navogue is a Curragh. A Navogue is, a, is, the, is the Kerry version of a Curragh. A Curragh is a, a light boat made from oak, deal, ash uh it's basically a lightweight probably best described as a wicker basket with a pair of jeans pulled across it because it, the outside is canvas so it's a so it's a light boat made of kind of wicker almost like a wicker basket <laughs> and then canvas stretched around it and painted with tar to keep the canvas waterproof so it's a very light boat the idea is that two people can pick it up and put it on the on the on the strand or on the shore on the harbor and then they put it back in the water. So it's a very light boat. And because it's so light and because of the shape of it, it looks like a, it kind of looks like a banana. It's like a, like a canoe, you know, and um, a little bit wider than a canoe. And because of the nature of its shape, it kind of has this, it looks like a banana, it has no keel. So it's very skittery in the water. It's like always moving on the waves. Um, and it, it sort of sticks to the waves like a feather would. So imagine a feather landing on the sea and the sea is going mad. The feather just kind of doesn't, it's just constantly on top of the water. So whatever the water does, the feather is on top of the water. And that's the way these boats, these boats were designed. They were designed to just stick to the water. So when a wave comes, it just climbs the wave and then just goes over. The, you know, it's like, it's always, its belly is always, it's, it's, it's only sits in the water one foot. So if you, a full boat is sitting in the water only that deep. So it's always just resting on top of the wave. Now, it can get subsumed if it gets caught by the side because it's, like I say, it has no keel. So it's very uh, unsure of itself if, you, if there's a wave coming from the side. Um, but if there's a wave coming from the front, it just goes. So you see, like, there was moments when we were in the boat and, and I'm looking at the wave. So the way the boat works, you're always rowing away from So where you're headed to is behind you. You're not looking at where you're going. You're always rowing to, you know, you're always looking behind you. So I'll see a wave come towards the back of the boat and it's like seven foot tall, you know, and it's coming and it's coming and it's coming and I can, almost, I can touch it out of the back of the boat. And then just as, it, just as it's about to come into the boat, the whole boat just goes, and it just does this thing where the whole back of the boat lifts right up and right back down. 
So, so the boat is an amazing design. It's amazing. And, 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 you know, the boat they say came up from the North coast of Spain, you know, way, 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 way back, like a thousand years ago, the design and that we in Ireland continued with the design. And so anyway, everybody's heard of the Camino de Santiago. So this walk from, you know, traditionally it was from Rome. Some people say it was, it came from Ireland. Basically, People used to walk from all over Europe to a field of stars, uh, the, 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 the yeah, um, uh, Compostela, uh, um, um, God, what's it called? Uh, um, Santiago de Compostela. Compostela, the field of stars. So where James, is, where St. James is said to, to, have, to have died and he, he built a church in Santiago. He did a long pilgrimage. So people walk in the footsteps, footsteps of St. James. So it's a pilgrimage. Now I've done it a couple of times when I was younger, but I was, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not like religious. I'm not spiritual, certainly, and interested in like. I think the Bible is one of the most really. In, it's a really interesting read, as is the Quran, or as is any of the the biblical, any of the the, the the spiritual texts. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Always have been. I've got a. I've got a kind of a natural curiosity for the. Like for anybody who's found, I, when people are found, I find it really interesting. Like, you know, whenever I meet somebody who's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I'm like, tell me about that. Like, what does it feel like to, to know something, to know it in your heart? Because I don't know it. And I, I find it really interesting when people know. Now, I also find that, that sometimes every decision you make and every position you take is a bar in front of your eyes where eventually you become imprisoned in your own, you become imprisoned in your own uh, uh, ideas of the world. And so you can't, you're not learning anymore because you're trapped in your dogmas. There's also that aspect. But anybody who, who has, a, who has a, again, to come back to curiosity, anybody who has a curiosity about spirituality or, you know, I find it, I'm always curious. I always want to know about people who are found. But anyway, so... You've got the Camino de Santiago, this pilgrimage that people make, have been making since the 14, 14th century. No, 14, 1400s, I think. I, I could be wrong. Maybe it's way older than that. But this is traditional uh, route people would take. So what the lads decided to do, apparently there had been 800 years ago, and we were doing it on the 800th year anniversary. There was a Camino voyage from Dublin from actually, I think it was from Kerry, from Kerry to Santiago in Spain. Now, on a small craft like a Curragh, that's a long journey because it takes you, you know, it take it would take you a month, probably of two weeks, no, a month I'd say, to get from Kerry around the coast of Ireland, if depending on which way you go. Maybe it take you two weeks. To get from Kerry to 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 basically Wexford, if you were to and then you have to cross the channel. So the lads cross the channel in this boat, and you're at the total whims of the the currents and the, the you know and the channel and the big boats, and you know you're in a tiny craft. This thing is like it's from it's from the end of the piano to the window. I mean, it's like and there's four people in it, and you're like you know all day, you know, just like pulling your weight, you know, as they say. And, 
And so they did it in installments, uh, Dublin to Wales, um, then Wales, then down the coast of England, uh, from Southampton or from, from, down, from there to Calais. And then from Calais, they went down the coast of, uh, of France. Now, when you go down the coast of France, the seas get kind of wild and there's a military base in around Bordeaux where you have to then go inland. So they took the boat up river, up the river system, and they basically went around Bordeaux, back out then down to San Sebastian. And in San Sebastian is where I met them. So then there's, there's only about 700, 800 kilometers left where you do the full length of Spain on the Bay of Biscay. And that's what, that was the part that I joined. And my God, I was so, so grateful. You know, in the, in the Ernest Shackleton advert for, um, you know, when endurance was going out in 1914, there was an ad in the newspaper, you know, like uh, men wanted for hazardous journey, you know, safe return, doubtful, you know, glory if we achieve our goal, you know, recommended, you know, or, or you know, there was just like this, there was this ad that basically said, you're probably not going to survive this. But if you want to come, we're going. And, you know, the great age of exploration, these guys, you know, they couldn't hold people back. They, would get, they got so many replies. People wanted to go on this expedition to go see new places and new land. So that's what it felt like to me, getting on this Irish traditional boat. I get seasick on a ferry. So, like, I get seasick if I even go out on the, on the you know, on a paddleboard. So I was sick as a dog, but I knew that I had to get sick and keep getting sick and get through it to get to the place where I could, you know, do the journey. Uh, and we went and it took us five weeks from basically uh, uh, San Juan Pasaya, which is a beautiful old traditional boatyard where the Spanish Armadas were built. And it's still a boatyard that's still active. And these people, when they saw our tiny curragh, they gave us beds to sleep on, sleep in, inside in the workshop. So we were sleeping in this giant workshop with a Spanish galleon that was being built. This Spanish traditional boat was being built. And we were all these craftsmen. And it, I, I tuned into with these men who were like hard, the native Irish speakers. And the mad thing is they were very generous people, but they were speaking Irish in Spain. In, in Galicia, they were speaking Irish. And the mad thing is in Galicia, they know more about Irish history than than most of us people, most normal educated people in Ireland, they love Irish history. They, uh, they, you know, they, they, they um, but the lads were speaking Irish to them, you know, and then we went into Cantabria and then from Cantabria into Asturias and Asturias is like Ireland. You see all these beautiful old thatch cottages and you feel like, you feel like you're in Ireland. Then you go from Asturias and um, into Galicia. Oh, sorry. you sorry. Into, uh, into Galicia. I'm sorry. I was saying the, uh, the Basque, we start in the Basque region. The Basques are amazing. They know all about Ireland. They're much more into the Irish separatist, you know, idea. They're into this kind of the 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 more you know, they're really passionate about their uh, about nationalism and you know, and they really know their Irish history. And then, of course, the Galicians essentially are Irish. And so, we this journey was a deep, deep experience. Uh, it was a deep experience to do with language, to do with cultures. And the great thing was uh, every day. We would row and row. We'd go out. We'd be about two miles off the shore. And we'd row and we'd, we'd sort of go, right, the next harbor town is, you know, let's say uh, Porta Vega. So we went to Porta Vega. Or should we go on another 15 kilometers and go to this? You know, and we'd say, no, let's go into Porta Vega. We'd go in and we'd row this tiny boat into the harbor. 
right around the time when the fishermen are bringing in their fish and they're you know they're out on the decks cleaning the fish and and so we're pulling into this village in this tiny boat and all the fishermen would come to the edge and look over the edge and they'd see the little boat with these crazy irish people in it and they see the little irish flag hanging off the back of the boat and they would say to us you came from ireland you came from ireland in, in that and the lads would be like we did you know and the the boys would be like they'd, <laughs> they'd welcome us in they'd introduce us to their wives they'd we could camp in our gardens if we wanted they would feed us we there, there was a there was there was three rules on the boat and danny was he was great uh, no complaining was number one, which, you know, it was very hard when you're sitting on a on a, a wooden bench all day rowing when your arse is, you know, torn off you and your hands are in a heap because you're just these huge big wooden oars. <laughs> and no complaining, no money was another one. No, uh, no money. So how do you do that? We just, we just, we spend as little as we can. And the amazing thing was every day fishermen would come in and say, they were giving us fish. Their wives were cooking paella for us or they were cooking tortilla. And we were basically, and then we would go to the local bar where the local fishermen were buying us drinks and we were singing songs and playing traditional music. And we just, it's the closest that I'll ever get to living in On the Road by Jack Kerouac or, or living in this, like it wasn't, when I say it was an odyssey, it was really an odyssey because we were making friends, not just, not just meeting fishermen and getting drunk. We were making friends everywhere we went. And we didn't have the language. We had a few words in, in you know, in basic Spanish. Uh, and the lads were talking Irish most of the time to people. But it just worked because the spirit. And again, it comes back to if you follow, if you follow the madness and the wildness. There's a lovely word in Irish called fientus. Um, and fientus just means wildness. You know, it's like that kind of, you know, fientus. You know, he's got, he's got fear fientus, definitely. And it's a wildness of spirit. Um, and we were arriving in, and we were getting off this boat. We were wild because we'd been at sea all day, rowing and singing and laughing. And we get in and we go straight to the bar and we drink a beer and we're like, Wah! we had this madness in us. It was a kind of a, which can only be described as something that comes into people when they come off the sea, who've been working hard out on the water. There's a kind of, your death was, you're certainly landsick because the ground is still moving because you've been in a, in a, a boat all day that's doing this and so the ground just does this for for hours and you feast up and you sing songs and and then you're just you suddenly fall into your tent you know you we'd pitch a tent on a roundabout we'd pitch it on a beach we'd pitch a tent in someone's garden like we were just pitching our tents because the first thing to do is pitch the tent first thing is get the boat in off the water tie it up we, and the other thing is at no point from dublin to england to France, to Spain, to Santiago. At no point did anybody take out a passport. There was absolutely no passports shown at any point. And, and also there was no paying for uh, a, a spot in the harbor, the marina. We were pulling into marinas with like, you know, $30 million boats in some marinas, $30 million boats next to us. And we'd pull up, we'd park up. Nobody ever asked us for money. Nobody ever asked us who we were. We just accept to say, welcome, come, you know, come, come. Uh, and we were, we were, it was the most amazing experience. There was nights where we camped in a, we camped in a park. There was one night where we camped in a park and loads of young lads 
who were out drinking on the weekend with their girlfriends suddenly saw these bunch of fellas camping in their local park and they pulled the, 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 the peg down on our tent, you know, and then at one point, one of the lads threw something at one of the tents and we were like, we, we were fast asleep, but these lads were clearly messing with us. And you're like, I jumped out of my tent, the Ballymunner and me jumped out of my tent and chased them. <laughs> you know, and I'm in me in me jocks, you know, running after them, like, what the you know, and then and then the lads were all laughing and they were and then we got to a point where uh Brendan came out running with me and Brendan was chasing them too. And then we stopped and we said, lads, come here. And they were like, they were kind of standing off, you know, all young lads, come here. And we and they came with us and we walked them down to the harbour and we said, Look, I see that boat, the barca. Uh said me, I was in Mia Barca. And the boat, the kids were like, and you see the Irish flag, and they're like, and he's like, we uh Camino Santiago, uh, and they're like, and the kids were like, in this boat you came for. And then suddenly they were protecting us. They were protecting the tents, they were protecting the bow. They couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, it, it went from kind of like, you know, you know, gurriers to like, we have we we protect we protect you, you know, and they were and I said. Please keep an eye on the boat and keep an eye on you know. And uh, so they were so it ended up, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing going on on the trip. There was a lot of it, you know, what it must have felt like to be a, to be a, like a, you know, to like you sometimes you get it when you're on tour, of course, you get that sort of sense of you're bringing a spirit with you. And the spirit is the spirit of adventure and curiosity and wildness, fiendus, you know. Uh, that's that's all you're bringing with you. And music, we also had instruments. So each night, the biggest party in these tiny villages that we were pulling into, the biggest party in those villages was in the bar that we were all in. Because we were just like, bah! lashing out songs with this wildness and energy, you know? Another great Irish word, fwinev. Fwinev is like a, you know, fwinev is like spirit. You know, it's it's uh, it's different to fientis. Fientis is wildness. But uh, Funav is just energy. It's like spirit. And so we experienced that everywhere we went. And it was, a, it was an, an extraordinary trip. It's amazing hearing like you tell a, stories. Really, like you're an incredible storyteller. And, and like, I guess one of the things like for anyone listening, it's like to get a nugget from what you're saying, it's almost like, like how do you apply that to someone? Because that's like your stories are like everyone got, it's like a movie. It's like, You've just described a movie with beautiful poetic words and it's like a story that everyone goes, I want to be in that boat. When can we sign up? When can we do something like that? Because it just sounds like it gives so much purpose and meaning. Like, how would you make that applicable to someone's daily life that might be listening? Because, you know, all of us within us, we want that fiendus. We want that spirit. We that want sense that of adventure. joie de vivre. Like, how do we cultivate more of that? It's a great question. And, and, and to, to go back to the genesis of that trip, I was standing with Brendan Begley at a gig and he, he just got off the phone with one of the crew members who had just gotten a job and I wasn't going to be able to go on the boat. And he said to me, he just turned to me and he said, do you want to go on a boat? And I just said, yes. So, so that's what I'm talking about is that spirit of just say yes. If someone comes up, comes at you with a, with a mad notion, you know, just go for it. Again, to come back to the very beginning of this conversation, go for life, embrace life. Just say yes to life. If someone comes out, comes, gives you this crazy idea. No, that's not to say that after I said yes to Brendan, I went through all kinds of questions like, well, how long is the trip? And what is the trip? And it's in a traditional Irish boat along the Bay of Biscay. 
I was like, oh my God, I, I get, and all the questions and the fears came into me too. But, but I'm so happy to say that yes was the first answer. And then all the no's and maybes, you know, crept in, but well, I managed that's to- That's a great you know, synopsis. That's very good, Glenn. I like the way you bring it back home. <laughs> well, one, yeah. one question, because I know, sorry we're taking more of your time, but one final question, Glenn. Previously, when I was chatting to you, you were talking about how recently you've started eating more plant-based and you found it to be very beneficial. How have you found, you know, often our messages trying to encourage people to eat more fruit and veg and it's not necessarily about being, you know, black or white, like as in you're vegetarian or you're vegan or you're nothing. Yeah. It's just trying to eat more plant-based. And how have you yeah. found your relationship with the vegetables? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's been an incredible, an incredible learning curve for me. Um, as, as you know, and I've spent a long time traveling. Um, I grew up in a house. My mother was basically meals were something to get done. They were something that needed to be done. So meals, growing up, I was, you know, it was chips with everything. So chips with a fried egg, chips with a fried egg and beans, chips with fish fingers, chips with, with Findus crispy pancakes, chips with, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, and then on Friday, and then on Friday we had fish with potatoes, and um, and then on Sunday you had bacon and cabbage. You didn't always have you didn't always have the bacon because you had the cabbage and potatoes for sure, but sometimes you did, and so depending on how how the purse strings were. So you know, we came from a tradition: frozen pizzas, you know, spaghetti hoops on toast, all that stuff. You know, classic growing up stuff. And then when I moved in with Philippa, the painter, uh, she was making crazy stuff like Italian food, like pizzas and pastas and like, and then like salads, like never seen a salad in my life until I, you know, me ma did make the occasional salad, but her salads were like boiled egg, lettuce and onions. It was like, there was no, you know, um, whereas these salads were more exotic. <laughs> grown in the garden, you know, and um, so to cut to the, so, and again, traveling for years in a band, uh, eating whatever you could get, stopping in a Denny's in America, you know, eat, you know, living on shitty food and then whatever the venue would cook up for you. And oftentimes the venue would just make a big lasagna or they'd make a pot of pasta or a curry or whatever, just living on whatever. I When we were on the road, I always just view food as fuel. I don't care what it is. Just I want to eat something so I can play. So there's, there's almost like the relationship with food is a very, very simple when you're, when you're playing music. You just want to eat, fuel, go, you know. Uh, and I remember last Christmas. Now, my cooking experience, like I, 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 I love cooking. Um, but my cooking would be more or less, my traditional relationship with cooking would be more or less kind of French loads of cream and butter and, you know, like a roast chicken and, you know, doing all that kind of thing. And then, and, you know, my mother loved, loved the meals I would make, like I make it, you know, all that stuff. But last year we were sitting here at Christmas uh, and both my brothers, two of my brothers, uh, I have three brothers, two of my brothers were telling me that they were on, one brother was telling me he's on heart pills that he takes every day. 
Another one was telling me that he's on pills for his stomach. My mother was on all kinds of pills. My dad was on pills for stomach issues and, and heart issues and blood pressure, you know. And I looked at my older brother and I said, you're too young to be on. And then I looked at myself and I looked at my younger brother. My younger brother is quite much younger than me. Was also on these uh, pills for, for, for digestion and pills for... And I, and I said to Myra, they, they left that night and I said to Myra, I'm not, I, I don't live that differently to them. I eat a bit more greens. I eat a bit more, my diet is a bit more varied. But basically I don't really eat any differently to my brothers. So it's only a matter of time that, that I start coming down with something, that my body will start. And so I just said to Myra, you know, Let's do it. Let's 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 do plant based because we've been you know we've been tuning into Zach Bush and God I love the guy. Okay, I just whenever I hear him on a podcast I just love him. Um, and there's one particular Zach Bush podcast that I just really really adore. Um, uh, I can't think of the name of it right now, um, but I've sent it to loads of people. Um, and then you know Dr. Bernard, Dr. Bernard. Uh, uh, and I love him. And I just said to Myra, let's do it. And I believe that in, in your life, in your year, maybe it's the same with drinking. In your year, you probably get two days where you can make a decision to give up. Where you have the resolve. I'd say, when I say two days a year, that's probably being generous. Because I think a lot of us, there are moments in our lives when we can make a decision. And sometimes those days passes by and we didn't make any decision. But for some reason, that Christmas day or that Stevens' day, as it was, I just went, let's go plant-based. And for some reason, my resolve in that moment was such that I was going to follow through. I wasn't just going to do it for a day or two. I was going to go for it. And Myra got really, Myra got really excited about uh, you guys. She was reading, we have the Happy Pear uh, cookbook. But she was also got really into uh, this guy, this Brooklyn guy. Um, uh, anyway, she got really excited. Now, we make your red pepper pasta. But what's lovely about, 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 uh, about moving into new areas is that the, the, the recipe is just a guide. The recipe is just there to kind of get you to where you need to get to. So immediately when we made your red pepper pasta, we stuck in. We stuck in frozen peas and broccoli. And then we decided to shift it. Into, and then, you know, how we make the cream sauce on, you know, we, like we were making a kind of a potato lasagna. Uh, but instead of using like bechamel sauce or dairy, you know, grinding pine nuts and cashews and making a cream out of them. And, you know, like we suddenly, there's a whole universe suddenly opened up of like, what happens if you do this? And now we're at a point in Myra, I have to give credit to Myra for this because she really, has gone so far down this road of just experimenting and trying things. And we are pretty much living from our garden now. And when we're not living from the garden in the kind of depths of winter, when we've run out of whatever we grew during the year, we're also part of a, of a, there's a, there's a local farm, the Dairy Beg Farm. And we go up to them every Saturday morning. They hand us a paper bag full of whatever they're growing. We don't choose it. We don't 
you know, okay, we've got a lot of beetroot, but let's learn how to make beetroot. Uh, let's learn how to jar beetroot and, and preserve it. Let's, you know, there's an awful lot of kale here. Let's have more colcannon. We love colcannon. And so we're living, we've been just living over the last year. And I have to say, this, it's so heartbreaking to go to the supermarket, to go to, even if it's your organic vegetable section, to go to your organic vegetable section or your, I know that's a lot of, for a lot of people, they can't afford the organic section. But whether it's the organic section or not, you come home, you empty the shopping bag, which we bring with us. But, and then at the end of putting your vegetables and your food away, you've got a pile of plastic, a pile of plastic every time you go shopping. That you just feel dirty having in your kitchen. And you've just gone and bought it. You've spent money on it. It's not even like, you know, whereas being part of Dairy Bag Farm, we go up there on a Saturday morning. Everything is given to you in a paper bag. It's one bag. You put it under, you put it in the boot of the car. You come home. The mud is still on the vegetables. The earth is still in them. The life, they've just been picked. There's no plastic. It's like it's a no-brainer, you know. And you're paying these people, you basically say, we're going to sign up for a year. So let's say that's 350 quid. I actually don't know exactly what it is, but you pay 350 quid and every Saturday I'm going to go up and I'm going to eat vegetables from your farm for the rest of the year. And we're going to grow our own. And when, when we're growing our own, we're, going, we're not going to come up to you, but you're going to give that food to someone else. And so there's something really holistic and just, just bloody right. just it feels right and if you go with what feels right and you go with your gut and you you choose life that's life because the other thing about the pile of plastic that you've taken home from the supermarket is that it says you know made in holland made in spain uh product of south africa product you know you're just like oh my god the miles and the dirt that's taken to get this vegetable to us it's been sprayed it's it's you know, we, there's a, there's a, when people go into the supermarket, and of course everybody knows this, but I'll just say it for the sake of, for the sake of saying it out loud. When everyone goes into the supermarket and they want a good deal, there's something wrong. There's something wrong about a bag of sprouts costing 30p. There's something wrong about a chicken costing five euro something wrong because think about that chicken was born now it probably never saw daylight uh, it was fed so what, whatever it cost to feed it now i'm just talking about monetary i'm not talking about the spiritual aspect the spiritual aspect is very obvious it's not good but this animal was raised uh, fed killed someone's paid to kill it it was defeathered a machine probably did that. It was probably, it was defeathered. It was chopped up. It was put into a plastic container. The plastic container cost money. It was put into a box. The box cost money. It was put into a truck. The transport cost money. The petrol, the, the tolls, the, you know, the transport. It was then brought to a shop. It was shelved. The person who shelved it is being paid. So the point, the price of that chicken is not five euro. Price of that chicken is more like 30 euro. Uh, and it's not right that it's I, when I, look. I'm I'm getting into an area now where I'm unqualified 
I'm not qualified to speak to this really. But the other thing is, then when you cook that chicken and you eat that chicken, all of the energy that 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 went into that chicken's life or lack of life, you know, because the poor thing probably never saw light, you're putting that into your system. The, the antibiotics that were put into the chicken to make it grow faster, the the misery that it and its relatives have all gone through in order in order to feed you in this moment is all going into your system. And if you believe in any way, if you can even conceive of the idea that we are transmitting aerials, you know, as people, that we're transmitting good and we're transmitting bad and we're receiving good and we're receiving bad and how we filter it and how we put things, how things come in, how we filter it and how it goes back out, you know, is we are vessels. And if you believe you have to somehow try to keep that vessel or that aerial alert and clear and clean, then putting, you know, uh, sadness and darkness and, and, and into your system dulls your aerial. <laughs> no, I'm being very, I'm being very, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I, 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 I'm, and don't, please, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way being militant or, or you know, strongly in, into veganism or anything like that because, because anything that's a doctrine, vegetarianism even, anything that's a doctrine. I like when you said plant-based because plant-based is exactly right. When, if you're eating more plants, that's a really great thing because you're, doing, you're basically taking care of this thing that we inhabit. This this vessel this uh, that we only get a few years with, you know. Um, one of the things I loved in the Zach Bush uh, podcast is he said, "You don't see arthritic birds flying out of the tree, kind of going, you, you know, you don't see that. They live and they die. They live with full vitality, and then one day they keel over." And he said, "That's how we should be. We should live and we should die. That if you live a certain way, you will. You're just going to die younger, and that's that. So at a certain point." We need, if we want to live, and it's not about years because, you know, I'm not interested in this living to 150 thing that people go on about. What I'm interested in is living bright and living fucking clear. And, you know, and when, when, it's, when my time comes and it's time to move on and shed the mortal coil, I want to do it with joy. I want to go with happiness. I don't want to go miserable. You know, and I know that my body will break down anyway. And I know that, you know, the, the, this vitality or whatever will diminish. But just give it, just give the life you have. Give it meaning by putting good stuff into it. That's the, you know, that's what this year has been for us. And it's been a, it's been a, it's been a really powerful, uh, I went and had a health check actually in April. And I had a health check when I was 40. And I had a health check when I was 50. I was, I was 50 in April. And the, the amazing thing was, the doctor said to me, who did my test when I was 40, says, you're, you're, well, you're thinner, your cholesterol's better, your bloods are better, you're actually taller, <laughs> which is weird. Like, you're actually taller than you were when you were 40, which shouldn't be the case, you should be smaller. And she said, everything, everything about your state of health right now is is better than 10 years ago. She said, I don't I can't explain why. And I said, well, we did go plant-based uh 
Now we we had been we had been going plant based for months before January, but we went boom. We said right, we're doing it, and um, and we went fully plant based in in January last. And basically, the, the the point I'm just trying to make, I'm not trying to oversell it, but basically, my health had recovered to a to a to a to a noticeable degree, uh, and it it felt great to walk out of that hospital, you know, knowing that yes, I'm getting older. And yes, things will take their course and the, and the great, you know, the big tree has to give way to the little tree and being all aware of all of that stuff. But while you're here, just to have the vitality still run through your system is a really, uh, is a, a very humbling and beautiful thing. And it by no means militant or by no means uh, pious or by no means I'm right and you're wrong. Just like, man, if you could feel like this, wouldn't you do it, you know? And if you could do it in, in a way that connects into the harmony and the connection of all living things, like, I just, uh, I think it's brilliant, you know? Yeah, brilliant. I've, I've, got, I've got one final question for you, Glenn, and this is one because yeah. I know we're, we're longer than we thought we would be, but I have to talk with you about this because I think it's such an important issue and it's something we're educating ourselves much more about. And I think... Like the conversation has been very much about pandemic the last year, year and a half. And we've kind of stopped talking about the environment and the state of the environment and the climate crisis and all this type of thing. And I'd love to know what, it, what are your thoughts on this and what we can do together and what we need to do? Because more when I dig into it, I realize, geez, like this is this is not going away. This is something we have to double down on and show up for. And not be getting lost in the latest iPhone or the latest, you know, whatever it might be. It's the biggest one. I mean, it's it is, you know, it, the, the 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 you know the COVID pandemic is a ripple compared with the wave that follows, which is climate, because it's 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 already happening. It's already no, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough one to talk about. It's a tough one to get your head around. It's a tough one to get passionate about because the way the world seems to be at the moment is that you have people banging pans and then you have people so exhausted by people banging pans. Like, like if, you go on, if you go on Instagram or you go on Twitter and you see like Extinction Rebellion, then you see, you know, you see, I have great admiration for Greta Thunberg because every Friday, you just see a picture of a girl with a, you know, a climate, you know, school strike for climate. You see, what one of the things that I find exhausting about this issue, which is the biggest issue, the most existential issue of our of our time, is how. It's hardly spoken about. It seems that it's spoken about all the time. But in fact, if you look at the news, if you look at it's so little time is given to the, given to the subject in, in any meaningful discussion in terms, in terms of the radio. And, the, and then you've got your Twitter feed or your, your you know, I don't do Twitter, I bloody hate it, but your, or your, you know, your Instagram page or whatever. Uh, and it's like, it's just, you know, like it's exhausting. You can't engage in it. So how do we 
how do we engage normal, everyday people like me, like you guys, and sort of say, how do you, like, it comes down to simple things. Uh, the more humans there are, the less nature there is. The more we encroach on nature, the more we'll have deadly pandemics and deadly diseases because, because basically the, the animals are getting closer and closer together. In Ireland, let's just talk about Ireland. Um, like in Ireland, the hedgerows are being cut down. The, the, we, we, we have 0.2%, 0.2% of native Irish forest left. This whole country was covered in, in wood at one point. And um, it was used to build armadas. It was used to build, to, 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 you know, the, Brit the British Navy's boats. It was used by us. It was used by, it was like, it, 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 the wood is gone. The, 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 just, if we could think, you know, think local, act global. You know, this, this idea of, we could just think about Ireland. Just think of it like, you have to always, with this stuff, you have to come back to your own back garden. You actually have to come back to where you're sitting. And what you're sitting on, what am I sitting on? I'm sitting on a wooden chair. I'm sitting in front of a wooden piano. I've got wooden beams going across my roof. I've got wooden windowsills. I've got wood. My instruments are all wood. Like the, 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 the notebooks I write and write my songs in are made of wood. The, the, you know, it's, it, we are the fire that heats us right now. Like we are so connected to nature, way beyond what we can kind of conceive. It's, it's, it's like we have, been, we have been using the land using the land so, so hard. And I really admire Mary Reynolds, her idea of just give a little corner of your garden back to wildness. Fientus, let's go back to that word. Fientus, give a little bit of your garden back to wildness. Because what is going on in that part of your garden that you don't see? Hedgehogs are going on over there. Hares, foxes. Like, give, Mary tells this beautiful story, lads about one day she was in her kitchen. Now, I hope I, I'm paraphrasing, but I hope I get it right. One day she's in, a, Mary won the Chelsea Flower Show because she's a garden designer. So this is somebody who has wrangled nature into the shape of award-winning gardens. So like, you know, now in fairness, she won the Chelsea Flower Show for a garden made out of weeds. So, you know, full respect to Mary for that. But so we, we you know, this, in the Renaissance, in the Renaissance Italy, this idea of like shaping nature to your, to your bidding is where the idea of gardens came from. It's where the idea of lawns came from. This idea of beautiful, you look out your window and you see a beautiful vista, man-made ponds, you know, follies, things that look like castles in the distance that are just a, a thing you built on the side of it. This idea, this Renaissance idea of, you know, cultivated space, cultivated natural space. And Mary was at her window doing her dishes and she's looking out her window in her mind as she's listening to the radio or whatever and she saw in the middle of the daytime a fox two foxes running past through her garden which is an open garden through her garden out the other side and she was like wow and then she said followed by two hares now you've never seen a fox followed by a hare it just doesn't happen you know two hares go by then a hedgehog and she was like, okay, what's up? She put down her, took off her, you know, put down the, the dishes, went outside and looked across the road. And what was happening was the people who had bought the old cottage across the road had gotten planning permission to tear it down and to build their home. 
Now, what they were doing was they were clearing the, the gorse. They were clearing the bushes. They were clearing the brambles, which you would naturally do. You want to clear the bit of ground you just bought so that you can then build your house. So in and of itself, there's nobody's guilty. But what was happening was the habitat of these wild animals, which was just basically an extended corner of an abandoned house, was home to hares, foxes, and, uh, uh, and hedgehogs. And that was only what passed to our room. Don't forget all the small birds, the wrens and the robins and all, the, all of the rest. This was home to them. Now, it's only a tiny corner of a field, but it was home to these animals who are our feathered and furred neighbors. That's who they are. We, this notion that we are humans and we are above, we're not. When they, when they go, we go. When the, when the trees go, when the forests go, we go. So it's all interconnected. We don't get to control. We get to help if we can. You know, we get to try to do something. But, but essentially, when they go, we're gone. So Mary was doing her dishes. She noticed that the animals now were homeless. Um, and she had an epiphany. She said, I shouldn't be cultivating gardens. I should be cultivating wildness. Uh, you know, to be a guardian, not a gardener. And, and, and suddenly this notion occurred to her to start this thing called We Are the Ark. Now, of course, anybody who knows their Bible knows that. So Noah was basically, God said to Noah, I'm about to blight this bloody place because it's the place, the world's full of assholes and I'm getting rid of you all. I, you know, I know I created all of this, but I'm getting rid of you because you're all idiots. I'm, but I like you. So build a boat, put one of every animal you like on the boat, and you can flow, but everyone else is gone. You know, this is the angry God of the Old Testament. <laughs> and so Noah builds this ark and the, all the animals get on it. And basically God says, for six years, the world will be nothing but water, but it will eventually dissipate and then you can re-inhabit with, uh, with, the, with the animals and, the, and your family because you're cool. Yeah, sounds like a crazy God, right? So Mary had this notion to, to, you know, to just say, let's build an ark. And the ark is just a piece of your garden left to wildness, to faintness. Give it back to the give it give it back to the nature. It doesn't have to be a whole garden. Just this corner where you just don't go near it. You know? And that can that can apply if you live in a flat in Paris or if you live in a, in the middle of Dublin, that can be your window box. Just let whatever grows in your window box grow. Because they say that they say that a, a, a living tree. You know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm going, I may get it wrong now, but 3,000 different species of life live on one tree. And they say when that tree falls over, it's something like 10,000 different life forms live on that tree. So even when the tree is dead, because it's never dead, it's just energy, it's just changing, but it's home to so much life. So to, uh, to answer your question, or not to answer your question, but to talk about uh, climate and to talk about it, it, it has to be. Everyone keeps everyone keeps on using plastic, and everyone keeps on driving their cars and going like the government are going to bring in some changes, and then we're all going to get bit. No, it does absolutely have to happen at a government level, but just on a personal level, individually, just, just, just raise your awareness because awareness is the energy 
that gets behind action. If you're aware, if you're aware you can't do certain things, if you become aware of certain uh, things that don't feel right or don't jive or don't rhyme or seem discordant, then you can't listen to music that's discordant for too long. You have to sort of try to put it right. So if, if what we can probably do is we can support initiatives which are about planting native Irish woodlands. We have an we have a, an, a we have a a, a board or a or a, a body a government body, which is taking care of Irish woodlands. And it's called Quilcha, as you as you guys probably know. And Quilcha for for a long time have been basically cutting down native woodlands and replacing native woodlands with Sitka spruce. Which is a which is a foreign uh, a foreign tree to Ireland. It grows in it leaves nothing at its floor, so everything at the floor of Sitka spruce is dead because the pine needles land land on the water. They plant them by rivers. The pine needles go into the rivers. They poison. They they acidify the water. The life that's in the water, the algaes, the fish, the water becomes acidified from these pine needles that go into the water, and what you end up with is 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 dead rivers and um, look, there is definitely somebody who's going to come back to me and go, "That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong." I accept that. I'm just making the point that that we have a forestry system which is short-term thinking, which is about grow it, cut it down, use it to to make furniture or to to burn wood. There's no long-term thinking cultivating native Irish woodlands where all manner of thousands of species can go and be and live and andrew has a, a, a andrew the, the guy that i work with in the the woodland league and um, has a lovely simple idea and i think it's just really and you know ideas first reality later that's that would be my motto on all of this have an idea talk about the idea then shoot it down but have the idea and talk about it because ideas ideas are where the energy is you know so this notion that every so we've canal systems going through Ireland, we have main roads. We have main roads going from the north of Ireland to the south of Ireland, from the east to the west. We have canals, rivers that run all over. What if let's just take rivers? What if for two hundred yard for a hundred no for let's let's say a hundred yards on on each side of every river in Ireland. What if for a hundred yards on either side of everywhere you have you just have native forest, and it's a corridor. It's just a corridor that goes through the country, which links one forest through a wild corridor by by a river by a you know you can have cycle paths and you can have you know but the cycle paths shouldn't be tarmac because tarmac bleeds into the water and kills the river. So you have to be careful. But have wild tracks, have places where people can walk, but have native Irish woodlands. Imagine, imagine if on the, 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 you know, the N4 going to Galway, you took 100 yards either side of the highway, of the road, and you just basically planted native woodland. So what you'd have is you'd have corridors going east to west, north to south, corridors of native woodlands by canals, by main roads. Now, of course, you, of course, you can hear the arguments already, but wild animals are walking to the main roads and get killed. Da, da, da. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But ideas first. Canals, rivers, you know, 
is there a, is there a way for us to cultivate not just to have them as national parks because we had an idea uh, with the frames that we were going to try and, and with Damien that we were going to try to just buy land and basically put a fence around the land and say no humans and just let the land go back to because everywhere you know Chernobyl's a great example everywhere that's left alone will eventually become a forest again so when they went back to Chernobyl you know Apparently, the wildlife's doing amazingly there. If you go, if you look at pictures of Chernobyl, if you look up, just Google Chernobyl and look at it now, it's like this incredible forestry system, incredible wildlife sanctuary where people just don't go into it because it was left alone and forest. You know, if, you, if I left this room alone for 30 years, there'd be a massive tree growing up through the middle of this room. This building would give way and nature would come back because nature is always coming back but we just have to let it come back. All we have to do is create the space for it to come back. All it actually takes very little action. It's about inaction in the right areas. Just step away from it. Because if I don't cut, the, you know, if I don't do anything with that garden, it's going to be a forest. So all we have to do is to, 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 to take a little space and give it back. That's really nice. I like that. Very that's, insightful. That's, that, that's very practical and real. Really is, and achieve, you know, Glenn. You're a legend. You really, really are. Is. You're such a beautiful human. So like, it's it's so pleasant to just sit and chat with you, like, and hear your stories. And you have a beautiful poetic language and different oh, take on things. I want to is... be like you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Lads, no, I no, genuinely huge respect. You know, you inspire me greatly. So, thanks, Glenn. You're amazing. Sorry we took so much of your time, but it was we enjoyed it immensely. Me too, me too. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> <laughs>